Please join me as we read out of Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God of the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me, and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then, for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give understanding. And we pray for Grant as he um, teaches through this passage that you would give us wisdom and understanding to understand what you're trying to say to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, I don't think we need a sermon about this. It was pretty, pretty self-explanatory, don't you think? Yeah. You know, when you, when you make a commitment to preach through Daniel, you go, man, I get to preach the Daniel in the lion's den and the fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar's journey and all that. And then you also know chapter 9 is going to be there. And this is some of the most, you know, uh, disputed territory in the scriptures. Um, and it, part of me wants to just go, you know what, just Google it and decide whose side of the argument you want to be on, and we can get on with loving each other. But this is scripture. It's divinely inspired. It's able to, it's, it's good for reproof and instruction. And not only that, it's to a time in Daniel's life that is not unlike our time too. And we definitely need to look at Daniel and what God has to say to Daniel and say, God, what do you have to say to me? And Daniel's 70 weeks that we'll get to here at the end of the message, these are some of the most disputed. We'll, I'll talk about this in a minute, but these are not only some of the most difficult words to interpret in the scriptures, they're some of the most difficult words to translate in the scriptures. Just taking them from Hebrew into English, there are many attempts at figuring out exactly what is said there, much less figuring out 
why it was said or what it means. And so we'll talk about some of the different perspectives. And instead of landing on one, we'll try to give a good perspective of, uh, of you know, throughout the Christian church in our time, where do folks land? But, you know, I would hate to spend time doing that and miss the plain, not only instruction, but example that Daniel gives us in chapter 9. In the first year of uh, Darius's reign, it starts. Just, dude, get your Bible, have it open to chapter 9. I don't know how to uh, do this except just go, hey, look at this. Hey, look at this. Hey, look at this. So if you're not looking at it, it'll be very difficult to figure out. It's going to be difficult anyway. But, um, it starts like this. In the first year of Darius's reign, uh, the son of Ahusar, uh, <laughs> I used to know how to say this, <clears throat> Ahasuerus, there you go, by descent Amid, who was uh, made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Well, we learn an awful lot. This is going to be about the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. Well, what does that mean? Is that something happening in the future? Is it something happening in the past? I think in the manifold wisdom of God, it might mean past, present, future. It could mean a lot of things, but I know what it meant to Daniel was that Jerusalem was in ruins as he was prayerfully and brokenheartedly still captive in Babylon under his like fourth or fifth emperor and second empire. So in the first year of this new reign, Daniel is probably in his 80s, 70s, 80s, something like that. And we've seen what kind of man Daniel has been the whole time. He has spent his life in exile. You remember he was one of the young people taken from Jerusalem. Um, and that whole time, he, he was a blessing to uh, Babylon. He's, he's a blessing to Persia, and yet he doesn't feel Babylonian. He doesn't feel Persian. His heart is still back home with Yahweh in Jerusalem. We've seen him hurt for the people of his hometown. We've seen him face Jerusalem and pray three times a day. We've seen him, a deep man of prayer, many times in times of trouble. You'll remember as, as the government makes an edict uh, a couple of different times that make it where it might be the end of his life, he gets his Christian friends together and prays. Christian fellowship, it wouldn't be Christian fellowship for him, would it? It would be the people of God in deep fellowship and deep prayer. This has been important to him his whole life. And We've also seen that he has been a huge benefit to Nebuchadnezzar. He's been a benefit to Darius. He's been a, uh, he'll be a benefit to Cyrus. Like this guy is salt and light. In Daniel, we see God's plan to be a blessing to the nations, that Israel might be a blessing to the nations, really come to fruition in this one faithful man. And if we're looking for some place to put chapter 9 in the timeline of the book, it's somewhere around the lion's den. Daniel is in prayer having this time either just before or just after the lion's den. Wouldn't it be fun if this was something that Daniel experienced in the lion's den? Like what more time could you be brokenhearted? So Jeremiah was a few years older than Daniel. 
Jeremiah and Daniel were roughly contemporaries, but Jeremiah had written and taught uh, in the years. And just, just so we're clear, this is the same Jeremiah that wrote a couple of books in your Bible. Wrote Lamentations, wrote Jeremiah. The same book of Jeremiah that you are reading, this is what Daniel is referring to. So Jeremiah had written, taught in the years leading up to the Babylonian exile. And he had died before the end of the exile. Jeremiah really is a tragic figure in the scriptures. He's called to preach truth, to preach repentance, to speak repentance in the halls of power when you remember what was happening before the exile. We have kings sacrificing their own son and blood running down the streets. And Jeremiah is in those palaces saying, you got to change, man. We got to be different. We used to be, we call ourselves the people of God. We used to act like it, not like idolaters. This was his, his, his message to these places of power in the palaces of Jerusalem. And he saw the punishment. He was alive to see the exile, but he did not leave, live long enough to see the end of that exile. But God had given Jeremiah a glimpse in the middle of all this, a promise of hope. While Jeremiah would see Israel carted off to Babylon, God had given him the assurance that that exile would last for 70 years. Now, like all prophetic, apocalyptic times in the scriptures, we have to hold numbers sort of loosely. 70 is 70. I don't think we should hold a position that these numbers don't mean anything, but it would be foolish for us to not um, honor the fact that numbers always meant something symbolic. And in some ways, they do for you and I too. If I said, man, I remember what life was before, what, like before my 21st birthday, you would go, okay, I know some things about the number 21 in our culture. There's, this is maybe before Grant started drinking. <laughs> Grant hasn't started drinking. We're Baptists. We never drink around each other. That's how... That's how, that's, how, that's how that goes. <laughs> but this 70 years speaks to fulfillment, doesn't it? It speaks to a complete um, punishment for Israel. Because God's anger was kindled against his people because of their idolatry and sin, but his compassion and mercy are greater. And in that 70 years that Jeremiah is told about, both of those things are evident. This is going to be complete punishment. This is not a time out. This is, you have broken the covenant, but my mercy will extend past even your generational sin. So chapter 9 opens with Daniel reading the prophet Jeremiah, and realizing that those 70 years are almost up. That this 70 years that Jeremiah, he's doing math and going, okay, well, I was a teenager when we left, when the exile started. 605 is the typical date that is given for that first wave that Daniel was probably a part of. And he's doing the math going, man, we're pretty close to 70 years. Those 70 years are almost up. God's mercy, God's, God's promises are certainly about to be fulfilled, but Daniel notices something else too. And we get in trouble when we take God's sovereignty and make it fatalism. What Daniel understands is that 70 years was intended for the people of Israel to learn something, that they would turn from idolatry. 
that they would be people who sacrificially followed Yahweh with full hearts. And Daniel's looking around and saying, that hasn't happened. While his people have endured punishment in exile, they still haven't learned what they were supposed to learn. There hasn't been a revival of faithfulness among the people of God. We have a few stories. We've got Nehemiah, the builder. We've got Ezra, the, the priest and scribe. But there has not been widespread confession, tearing of clothes and, and sacrificing to God and really acting like the people of God that they were called to be. So Daniel sees that the 70 years is up, but he also knows that God is a relational God and God is not the kind of God that just goes, well, I guess I promise 70 years, have at it. But rather, the intent was for the people of God to learn and they haven't learned, at least not culturally, in mass. So in verse 3, it says, Daniel turned his face to the Lord. And guys, if you want to take a nap after that, go ahead. This might be the most important thing in this passage, that Daniel looks at the mess that his people are in. He looks at the sin and idolatry that still exists. He looks and goes, man, we were acting like the people uh, surrounding us in, in Judea. And now that we've been in Babylon for a couple of generations, we're just acting like Babylonians. And so... It would be pretty easy. Like, I don't know about you, but I would feel a righteous rebuke coming on. If this was the ninth chapter of the book of Grant, it would have been, here's why everybody stinks. But Daniel turns his face to the Lord. And you know what that means. He gives God his full attention. He looks at the idolatry of his people and he looks at the power of Persia that is just destroying the world. Just, we've, 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 seen these imagery, we've seen this imagery over the past couple of weeks. It's just these beasts that just run through the, the, the region and destroy everywhere they go. And, and he's feeling that pressure. Probably felt very little. Probably felt very outmatched. And he turns his face to the Lord because that's what godly people do in times of trouble, in times of societal trouble, times of personal trouble, we pray, we face the Lord, we give Him our full attention, we behold Him in His greatness. So he turns his face to the Lord, away from everything else. He gives his attention to God and he begins a season of mourning. He puts on sackcloth of mourning and praying for mercy. Daniel is not a priest, but in the absence of of a working priesthood, he is prepared to take that mantle and pray, confessing for his people. Man, before we work out what exactly 70 weeks means, could we be those people in our culture? And let's not just talk about the, the, the state we're in, the, the political power we're under. Let's consider the people of God. If we see rebellion in the church, if we see sin in the church, if we look and are brokenhearted about the state of the church in our area, we could launch a diatribe, a righteous rebuke. There's a time for that. That comes very naturally for me. But could we also say, we need people who are going to turn their face to the Lord and confess on behalf of their their countrymen and, and fellow believers. 
So verses 4 through 19, we have Daniel's prayer, a prayer of mercy and forgiveness. And if we're brokenhearted for our people, if we're brokenhearted for our families, if we're brokenhearted for, for the church, we too might learn to use language like this. And we won't walk through every verse. It would be, you know, lengthy to do so. And, and um, you know, that's what, that's what maybe other kind of Bible studies are for. But if I could just give you the three kinds of of sentences that Daniel uses in this prayer. The three things he's kind of revolving around. One is a confession of sin. Guys, we are really good at feeling bad about our sin. We are not that good at confessing our sin. We are really good at pointing out the sin in other people. I have, I, I mean, I don't have a doctorate in anything, but if I'm qualified in any way, it would be to point out what other people are doing wrong. It comes very naturally to me and it does to you too. Daniel is not the one who has sinned greatly. Now, Daniel's not presented as a perfect person, but he is presented as one faithful man in a rebellious culture. And it's not his sin that he is confessing, but rather he stands in the gap. He stands in the place of that priest for his people. Which, who among us are priests? Would the New Testament not tell us? Would our particular brand of Christianity not compel us to say that we believe in the priesthood of all believers? That it is you and I that stand under the high priest, Jesus Christ. And maybe we have neglected the ministry of public confession, of, of, of confession, of intercessory confession. Daniel sees the flaws in his culture. He sees his people sinning in idolatry and it turns him not to accusation but to intercession. And if you naturally go quickly to accusation, might I encourage you as you mature in Christ to be a person of intercession, of standing between people who are unable to see their own sin and a holy and righteous God. So, Daniel says things like, we have sinned against you. And he doesn't say, we have sinned against you, especially Tom, you know? But standing on behalf of his people, we have sinned against you. He says, we've rebelled. We've turned away and refused to hear your voice. When he says that, do you see the juxtaposition? There came a time where he turned his face to God and said, God, as I turn my face to you, I recognize that we have turned our face to other things. If you would look in your scriptures to verse 12 and, and following, it says, he has confirmed his word. This is Daniel talking, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled over us. Like he said he was going to, God said he was going to do this and he did it by bringing upon us a great calamity for under the whole heaven, there has not been anything done like what was done against Jerusalem. For as it was written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. He says, we are experiencing the punishment that we deserve. I love how he even refers to the law of Moses. He's like, I read Deuteronomy. I read the, not just the current prophets, I read the old prophets. 
I read the histories and I know that God had always offered us, if you will submit to me, if you will follow me, if you will turn away from idols and follow me, your life will be good and I will be your protector and I will be provider. But if you turn after the idols of the cultures around you, then you will reap in yourselves, in your culture, the, 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 the consequences of that idolatry. And Daniel is looking and going, we're getting exactly what God said we would get and we still haven't learned. You know, I'm not somebody to think that every natural disaster or every, you know, certainly not every private disaster or, or every cultural movement is judgment on this or judgment on that. I think that's mainly, mainly a way to get people to click on your website and sell books and dumb stuff like that. But I would say, that if in times of tragedy we don't have the common sense to turn our face towards God and to say, God, in this hard time, I don't know what I would do except follow you fully, then we're foolish. We haven't learned. We're not learning what we need to be learning. So he talks about confession of sin. He talks about God's character. Verse 4 said, uh, I prayed to the Lord my God um, and made... Uh, confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He says, God who is great and awesome. Some of your translations might say great and terrible. And I know why the ESV uh, translators decided not to go with terrible, but I know why others did too. To look at God and know that he is the authority the sovereign, the king, and to go, I need to respond to your power, not just your grace and love, is wise. It's the beginning of wisdom, fear of the Lord. Verse 14 says the Lord, and both times in verse 4 and verse 14, I think it, it uses the word Yahweh there. And Yahweh is not, an, is not the word that, that gets used to refer to God very much in Daniel. But here, Daniel wants to use that covenant name, that, that personal name that, that Israel was given. So it's not just that God, Yahweh, is bigger than the other gods, which has been so much of the point of, of, of Daniel. But this is like, God, you're the one that introduced yourself to Moses. You're the one who got us out of Egypt. You're the one who grew us and blessed us and gave us David and Solomon. And you're the one we have rebelled from. Yahweh, it has been you. And Yahweh is righteous in all that he does. There's no fist in the air towards God. Rather, there's looking around and going, you know what? Idolatry is as idolatry does. We've been idolaters. We deserve to be here. But there's also not a, oh, shucks, nobody likes us. We're going to eat worms. Rather, it's an understanding that as we place ourselves under this mighty God, it is He who will rescue. He is righteous in all that He does. So Daniel, on behalf of these rebellious people, submits to God's character. And guys, this is the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. But can I tell you, it's also the beginning of peace. You want peace in your heart? Try doing that if you're the king. You want peace in your heart? You want joy in your life? 
It's not possible without going, God, I see how awesome you are. I see how limited I am. I'm going to submit myself fully to you. God, you've got it. You don't need my help. Thank you for loving me. This is where peace starts. This is where joy starts. So confession of sin and God's character and then a request for mercy. Let me just read to you uh, verses 16 through 19 and please read along. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins. And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword uh, among all those, like we're a curse word now around uh, all who are around us. Now therefore, O oh our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. What if we learn to pray like that? God, for your sake, would you show us mercy? God, would you hear? God, would you act? Not because of my righteousness. There's none of this, God, I gave years to you, where's my no, it's humble. It's praying not just on behalf of him, but on behalf of his culture. So verse 20 to 23 um, continues. Verse 23 is, well, verse 20 to 23, we hear God's response to Daniel. Look at verse 23. At the beginning of your pleas, this is Gabriel talking. We've met Gabriel in, in the last chapter. We kinda, he's like a character we know by now. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Before we get to 70 weeks, could we just revel? Could we just be in awe of God who would send Gabriel to Daniel to tell him, Daniel, from the time you started praying? A word went out. Daniel's prayer worked. Daniel's prayer mattered. Daniel's prayer moved the heart of God. Daniel, when you started praying, the throne room of God went into action. A word went out. Like Moses praying for the people in the wilderness. Like Jesus praying for Peter. Daniel has, do you remember that? Jesus looking at Peter going, dude, I'm sure Jesus said, dude, said, Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. But I prayed. That's how you got saved. Daniel has interceded for his people and God has listened. We think that being a people of prayer, of intercessory prayer, that being a people who pray for the church that pray for each other, that take that seriously, that fast and mourn 
and pray. We think that's not doing anything. But without that, nothing we do matters. As Daniel is a fine example. And then this line, God didn't have to tell Daniel that he's greatly loved. And we'll, we'll talk about this more next week as we wrap up Daniel. Three chapters next week. Bring snacks. Um, <clears throat> um, Daniel will get told again, but can you imagine that God is a loving heavenly father that would, hey, Gabriel, when you go tell Daniel, be sure he knows I love him. Daniel, you're greatly loved. One of the problems with understanding chapters like this is that we want it to be mechanical. We turn into fatalists all of a sudden and go, well, it was always God's plan from the beginning. Couldn't have happened any other way. Or we turn into, you know, open theologians where we go, oh, God doesn't know the future either. Can we instead be in the place where we go, God has a real relationship with his people. And wants Daniel to know, Daniel, I'm not just acting because I'm sitting on my throne aloof from everyone, but Daniel, I love you. and Your prayer matters to me. God, guys, if you need to hear this today, you are greatly loved. Your prayer matters in the throne room of God. And I even love this because Daniel doesn't, in his lifetime, doesn't really see the fruition. It's not like God in Daniel's lifetime goes, poof, we'll fix it all. Rather, it's, these 70 years are no joke. This is tough stuff, and Daniel's going to die long before it, 490 years. And yet, Gabriel, tell Daniel that he's greatly loved. And now this word comes from Gabriel. Verse 23 through 27. Let's just skip. And (laughs) that was supposed to be funny. (laughs) A little tense this morning, guys. You're like, oh, 70 weeks. I saw YouTube about this. Before we dig in, let's remember a few things. First of all, the word that gets translated weeks in some of our Bibles um, is the word sevens. Uh, when people are translating it, that's, that's what it is. And so we have to say, you know, what, did Daniel not know the word weeks? Or did God, was God confused about how numbers work? Did God need a calendar? No, rather this is how God decided to communicate this. And, which is mysterious, and it's okay that we're mysterious. Another thing I need to tell you guys, um, after all of the confusion that this passage brings, we might go, how can we trust God if we don't understand this passage? Because we know the tomb's empty. We are not Danielists. We're Christians. We see everything through the lens of Christ. We're not here because we understand Daniel 9. We're here because we understand the sacrifice of the cross and the power of the empty tomb. And we're just going to live in that. As a church, if you want to know where we land, that's where we land. But this is scripture and it needs to be talked about. So, so there are many different theories and I'll try to not be boring as I, as I uh, lay some out. Um, but, uh, but one is that these sevens are purely symbolic. After all, the word, the, the number seven is symbolic many times in scriptures, kind of means complete, kind of means the full thing. Or maybe they're, they're not symbolic, but maybe they're approximate. Like to, to make the symbolism of 70 and seven and to make that all work, it doesn't have to be exactly seven years or exactly 49 years, but that's kind of the ball park. And then other people would go, nope, it's in the Bible. It says 490. It means 490. And that's it. Um, So those are some of the ways that people have dealt with with that. And I think we would say certainly this represents 
some literal length of real time. Most people would say years, so seven, 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 77s would be uh, seven lengths of seven years. But I do want to remind you that there's a word for years in Hebrew. <laughs> if Daniel wanted to use it, he could have. Certainly, there's also a, po- a poetic tie-in to Daniel, or I'm sorry, to Jeremiah. How long were we going to be in exile? 70 years. And we didn't learn our lesson, and how long is this going to last since we didn't learn our lesson? 70 times 7. Now, I was talking about this with my 20-year-old this morning, and he goes, yeah, it's like when Jesus told Peter, you have to forgive people 70 times 7. He didn't mean exactly 490. It's like, yeah, we got to keep that in mind. That is right. Thank you, Zachary, the theologian. Um, I only owe him a dollar because he's not in the room this morning. If he was in the room, I'd owe him five for telling a story. Um, I made that deal with them when they were very young, and $1 and $5 felt like something. Um, <laughs> and I'm not willing to renegotiate at this point. Um, so, literally, figuratively, we're scholars. We know, no, we'll take this literarily. We'll let the Bible say what it means. Um, Some people try to solve the problems. These gaps don't work. The years never really line up exactly like you want them to line up, no matter which stance you take. And some people um, have have said, well, that's because there's a, a lunar calendar in Babylon. True, lunar calendar in Babylon, that's right. And that makes it easy to kind of go, oh, well, their calendar's different than ours. But still, summer was in the summer, and we're dealing with years, not just months and weeks. You with me? So, like, we have leap year to catch up. They also had leap seasons, leap weeks to catch up. So summer was still summer. So a year is still a year. Whether you're dealing with a lunar calendar or a Gregorian calendar like we have, which I don't know what it's based on. (laughs) It's a year. And I also want to point out before we dig in or as we dig in, the difficulty in translating this, much less interpreting it. And I really hope the PowerPoint works for this. We've been having trouble the last few weeks. But I want to, to kind of give you and uh, uh, show you how different Bible translators have, have translated this. So we're trying to figure out, is this seven years and then uh, another period of 69 years? Or is it seven years and then a period of 69 years minus uh, a week and then plus a week somewhere else or we're trying to figure out is this all one thing and let me tell you this is one of those go look at john three sixteen, and every translation you can find got it makes sense means the same thing you look at this and it's kind of difficult the esv says um phil are those coming up yeah thank oh praise the lord um So know therefore and understand that from the going out of this word to restore and build Jerusalem, the coming of anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, period. They decided that's the end. Seven weeks, period. Um, Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again. All right, the next one. NIV says it like this. I'm so glad this is working. The NIV says, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. And no period, no punctuation. So what's that mean? You can tell me later. Okay, Um, and I want you to know, in Hebrew, it's just like, just numbers. It's like, no punctuation, all running together. This is why you got to go get a PhD to, to even dig into translating. Okay, NLT says it like this. Now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven. Well, plus 
is different than a period, and it's also different than and. And is kind of chickening out, going, maybe it's together, maybe it's apart. You put a period there, and you go, these are separate. You put plus, and you go, these seem like they're together. All right, let's keep going, because this is fun. The, uh, the RSV, I know you love it. Don't act like you don't love this. Grant, more about translation. Um, uh, it says, there shall be seven weeks, and for 62 weeks, it shall be built again. So there's seven weeks, and then a 62-week building process. One more. The CSB, uh, Christian Standard Bible, which if I was starting fresh, CSB is great. If you're buying a Bible for somebody, I like that one. Um, and tell an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That sounds like they just separated something that's all running together. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat. So that kind of seems like after the 62 weeks, period, it will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat. Talking about Jerusalem. So, let's have some humility as we decide what we think about this kind of thing. Let's understand that this is not only difficult to understand. I love that this passage starts with Gabriel going, so believe it and understand it. And you're like, I'm trying, Gabe. <laughs> Hanging on here, man. <laughs> I'm sure Daniel understood more than I do. And at the end of it, Daniel goes, I don't understand what this is about. So, Let's walk through Daniel 9.24 real quickly and see at least what this is about. Seven weeks are decreed. So where are we, Phil? Let me see if I can get this there. All right, here we go. Um, and it stopped working. Perfect. Um, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring the everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, to anoint a most holy place. So that's what we're looking for in history. That's a lot. A lot of things. This is about a lot of different things. It's about your people. Who's that? We always want to go, it's about me. No, it's not about you. The Bible is written to you. The Bible is not written for you or about you. All right, so um, he's talking about the nation of Israel. So it's about uh, your people, who, Daniel's people, the Jews, and this broken covenant, right? Like, so God and the people, the, the relationship is completely broken. This is what it's about. And your holy city, Jerusalem, that's all the, his holy city means, currently in ruins. So the, the covenant is broken. The city's in ruins. This is what this passage is about, is the rebuilding of this city. Uh, also, to finish the transgression. Okay, so we go, trans, to finish the transgression. So does this mean like to get rid of all sin, or is it referring to the transgression that caused the exile? I'll let you figure that out. Write a book and we'll all make money. The end of the punishment, right? That's what this is about. To put an end to sin. Now there's not a qualifier. It's not to put an end to yours. To put an end to sin. We need that. To atone for iniquity. Transgression, sin, iniquity. As an aside, these are kind of the three biggest ideas about sin in the scriptures. That transgression would be a rule that is broken. It's like rebellion. I told you not to go past this line. You, went, you transgressed that law. Sin is an offense. Sin is you have offended the character of God. You knew full well that God was holy and you acted common. 
sin. Iniquity is more moral evil. You did something that's morally a mess. So, not only is this about, and I hope you're going, wow, I'm getting, I'm starting to feel like I'm on quicksand. That's, that's where this passage leaves you if you have some humility and, and, and deal with it. So it's about this practical rebuilding of the city, the broken covenant between God and his people. And it's also about some very big ideas about atoning for iniquity and the end of sin and the end of trespass. And then it says that this is to bring in an everlasting righteousness. And he didn't have to use the word everlasting, but he did. Also, this is about sealing up both vision and prophecy. So sealing up is something that translators and commentators have dealt with too. Seal it up might means to close it, and they both are related. So if you have a scroll and you roll up the scroll and you put a seal on it, there's two things. First of all, it's authenticated. It's like this is the royal seal of Grant Combs. Boom. To which everybody goes, who cares? Um, but, you know. Uh, if it's the royal seal of Darius, well, you'd go, okay, this, this matters. This is authenticated. But it also closes it up so it can't be read until that seal is broken. So translators and commentators wrestle with, well, what, what's the emphasis there? To anoint a most holy place. Oh, this had to feed Daniel's soul like the most holy place, the temple to be rebuilt that got knocked down by Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, how I would love for the holy place, the, the Ark of the Covenant and the curtain and the whole thing to be there, God's presence. Clearly a reference to the temple, which in Daniel's time was in ruins. So the question is, has this happened? This is a pretty specific list. Has there been a time when all these things lined up and we go, aha, that's clearly what Daniel was talking about and exactly the, the number of years Daniel was talking about it. And if we take the dates out of it for a second, we don't even try to worry about how many sevens we're into. If we just look at verse 25 through 27, are you there? Read your Bible with me. Verse 25 through 27 and see what Daniel is told um, will happen. And so he's already in verse 24, we kind of got, these are going to be the results. Now this like future history of what's going to happen is 25 to 27. Know therefore and understand, and I'll try to, to do a, a good job here kind of walking through, okay, what does this mean and what are the problems going to be and all that as we go through this. So first it says, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. Well, the problem is there were like four words that went out from the Persian Empire to go and rebuild Jerusalem. Um, and so, if I'm being honest, um, so eschatology, the end time stuff, has been a special point emphasis of study for me, but it hasn't been a few years, and this is why. Um, and I think it kind of needs to be for everybody once. You know, like, go read all the books. And when you go read all the books realize that the thing they have in common is the lordship of Jesus Christ. And let's land there. But in order to fudge the numbers to make the 70 years work, people kind of pick the decree that they like. And it's not over a range of a thousand years, it's over a range of about 25 years that different decrees are sent that send people back to Jerusalem to start to rebuild. So we have to deal with that. Then it says, the coming, uh, so to rebuild, uh, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, 
um, to the coming of an anointed one. Now, I just want to warn you, as soon as we see the word anointed one, that's the word that is Messiah. Who's that? No. Doesn't have to be. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are a lot of people that get anointed that are referred to as the anointed one. Now, for me and you, our New Testament brains automatically go to, there is one Messiah, and if anybody else is the anointed one, well, what about David? He was the anointed one. What about Joshua? No, not that Joshua. The Joshua much later in the story is also referred to as the anointed one. So it just means somebody that God has ordained to do a special work that you poured oil over them. We, we might think of ordained, like that kind of language. So, our New Testament brains automatically go, I know that person, but not necessarily. Daniel certainly wouldn't have understood it that way. Shall be seven weeks, okay? So, seven weeks, seven years from when? When are you starting? Then, for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moats. Some of your Bibles will say like with, uh, with streets uh, instead of squares, um, but in troubled times. So there's going to be, the city will be rebuilt, but it'll be rebuilt in troubled times. Okay, well, I don't know if you have been paying attention to the news for the last 2,500 years, but anytime something's happening in Jerusalem, it's happening in troubled times. So if you want to go, those troubled times were Greece. You got good rails to run on. If you go, those troubled times were Rome. You got good rails to run on. If you go, those troubled times were the 1940s. You got good rails to run on. If you would say, how are things in Jerusalem today? You would still have pretty good rails to run on. And again, the thing that people do is not fudge the numbers, but kind of pick the one that fits their theory best. So, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. Is that the same anointed one as earlier in the passage? It almost can't be because like seven plus 62 weeks of years have happened. That might not be the same dude. And shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and you go, the, the prince who is to come, Jesus. But he's going to destroy the city. Maybe not Jesus. Shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. Again, a flood, is this water or is this like rushing in? Here it comes. We, especially in apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature, you, you could make either case. Um, and, uh, and to the end, there shall be war. Again, I don't know if you know the history of the Middle East. There's been wars. There are wars. There will be wars. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Well, some people go, Jesus made a strong covenant with the people, um, the new covenant in his blood. Other people go, well, actually, also Antiochus, who we've talked about the last few weeks, who is this terrible... Uh, ruler from Greece that, that destroyed the temple again and sacrificed the pig in the Holy of Holies and the whole thing um, uh, in like the year 160-ish, um, he made a strong covenant with the, 
with many of the people in Jerusalem who were okay with living a more Greek life, and he made this covenant with them before he was cut off, before the Maccabean revolt and, and, and the temple was restored. And for half the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Well, again, Antiochus put an end to sacrifice and offering. Because he destroyed the temple, sacrificed it to sacrifice the pig to Zeus, the whole thing. Gnarly. The abomination of desecration. Jesus put an end to the sacrificial system. Because once and for all, he was the sacrificial lamb. That's not part, we take communion, we do not sacrifice lambs um, anymore. He put an end to that. And there's some that say the sacrificial system will be re-engaged at some point and then cut off by a future Messiah. To which I go, okay. And on the wings of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree is poured out on the desolator. So I'm only going to take another minute, but I want to show you this chart. In your bulletin, on the back of your notes are, there you go. So glad that's there. These are, some, these are four ways, not the only four ways, there are dozens of ways that people have worked this out. But I wanted to give you some perspective of this is kind of how Christians have put this together. And I wish the name of the views was not on the left. I just got this from the ESV Study Bible, I think, the online version of it. Um, this is not some, you know, I found some secret that's been you know, for all time, I'm the only one who knows it. Nope, this is just from the ESV Study Bible. And, and I just want you to see how people have wrestled with this passage. Um, so the first view would be that all of this was completed in the time of Antiochus in about the year uh, 160, 165, something like that. Now, you'll notice that the problem with that is that you need an overlapping 70 years of captivity and the 490 years of prophecy. So the first 70 years of captivity would have to be included in that first week in order to make the numbers work. Now, I would love to say this is honestly how people come to the scriptures and they go, I think this week is an overlapping week. You can't see that in the scriptures unless you start with trying to make the numbers work. The next view would say, okay, there was a 70 weeks of captivity. You'll notice a gap because they don't like the decree of Cyrus. They prefer uh, the decree in Ezra 7, not Ezra 1. That's fine if that's the one you like. But honestly, you only like that because the numbers work. And then there is something called the great parentheses that last for, I don't know how many years, around 2,000 so far. And then that last week would be a time future. This is probably... If you have ever been concerned about being left behind, this is probably, if you uh, grew up in the 70s reading the late great planet Earth, this is what you're more familiar with. There are other views. The preterist view um, would be just that these numbers link up exactly. It's just one season after another season. However, do you see it says the Messiah cut off in the middle of that 70th week, and that's when he confirms the new covenant, but did the temple get destroyed three and a half years after Jesus' death? No, it was like 40 years after Jesus' death. So even then, you have to make some of these numbers fudge a little in order to make it work. 
And then lastly, we have um, this view that is just largely literal until you want it to not be literal, and that just makes that last seven years the church age, which is where we are now. Now, I know I joke around a lot, and I go, and I say things like, so decide whatever you want, and I'm with you. And I, I say that because I'm trying to be funny, but I also say that because I've really wrestled with this stuff. This stuff has kept me up nights. And the thing that I have landed on is humility, is an insistence on the supremacy and centrality of Jesus Christ. I'm compelled by New Testament verses like Hebrews 9 that says, but now Christ has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin and sacrifice of himself. I don't know how these numbers work, but I know when the end of sin came. And I also know something that Daniel didn't know, that we know about this now but not yet reality. That sin is conquered. Jesus is not coming again to do away with sin. In fact, Hebrews says that. Is it, um, oh, in that same passage, he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. We are not waiting for Jesus that he might come do away with sin. He done it. We are waiting for Jesus that he might collect us into his kingdom. I'm compelled by Hebrews 2. For this reason, Christ had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people of God. I'm not waiting for my sins to be atoned for. That work was completed in, in the work of Jesus Christ and I can't make the numbers work and that used to keep me up and now it doesn't. Many times in the New Testament, we are told Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Quite frankly, I'm compelled by the wise men who were most probably downstream from Daniel that came from Babylon because they didn't know exactly where Jesus was going to be born, but they, know, they knew when to get there. And they didn't know because they followed a calendar. They knew because they followed a star. And I know that, there's, that the lunar calendar was largely based on watching the skies and all that, but we aren't told the date is now. Rather, they're like, we recognize this from Daniel's writing. We're going to go and meet the baby king. They knew when to go and they knew what they were looking for. They did not come and go, is there a poor kid somewhere? No, they said, we know that the king of the Jews is born. Would you tell us where he is? That compels me to say that Jesus is the center of all things. That whether or not you can make the numbers work, Jesus is the center of all things. I also know that many of the proponents of, and I'm not, I'm not being funny, many of the proponents of um, views that have said, we're in the end times, this is how this connects, this is where Russia is, this is where China is, this is where Israel is, this is where we all are, they've died. Which compels me to say, look, guys, nothing would make me happier if we're in the end times right now. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. But it is very likely that you're going to have to live out your life faithfully in a culture that's opposed to God. And instead of heading for the hills, how about we toughen up and pray like Daniel? How about we could become people of confession and not accusation? 
How about we take seriously fasting and sacrifice and intercession, intercession for the church? How about we learn to rely on each other as we faithfully gather in the name of Jesus and pray? That we would be a people of prayer. That we would know and trust God is not only listening, but responding to those prayers. That we would know that we are deeply loved that we would grow endurance. I've told you this before, but 100 years ago, the job of a pastor was described as getting people ready to die. And if I could live my life encouraging all of us to be prepared to die, not prepared... I mean, if, if, look, if we are people of endurance and love and passion and prayer, and then Jesus comes back tomorrow, have we lost anything? But rather, if we get so wrapped up in the end times that we refuse to love our neighbor and we are not a people of perseverance and prayer and then we have to live to a hundred as bitter people, we have lost an awful lot. I think we should be expectantly looking for Jesus. But look, if there is somebody that you need to show God's love to, and your eschatology says that Jesus might not come back tomorrow, so you're putting off loving that person, then Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Go love him. And if there's sin in your life, that if you knew Christ was coming back tomorrow, you would deal with that sin, then act like Jesus is coming back tomorrow and deal with that sin. There's a world that they don't care when Jesus is coming back. They care if we really mean this stuff or not. It's one thing to know all the signs of the end times. It's a far better thing to know Jesus' intimate friend, Savior, and Lord. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, would you teach us to love you more? Would you teach us to be like Daniel in prayer and in perseverance? Would you teach us, Lord, whether you come back before I finish this sentence or whether it is my natural death where I meet you, when I meet you face to face, Lord, I pray that you would find me faithful. That you would teach us to be a people who loves our culture, who loves the church and are willing to pray and stand in gaps and intercede. And Lord, if it means brokenheartedness, and if it means not getting our way, and if it means we don't see every victory immediately, then God, would you help us to just trust you? Man, I don't know if you could just keep your head bowed, and I don't know if you are, have been distracted. Your eyes have been other places, and today's a day that you need to turn your face towards Jesus. Would you just take a minute? in the quiet of your heart and turn your face towards him and commit yourself anew to him. And if you have never committed yourself to Jesus, let me tell you, there is no hope or peace or joy anywhere else. Would you give your life to him now? Whether you tarry a thousand years or whether you take us home today, 
Lord, would you help us to be faithful people? In Jesus' name.